be with you. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is both an inside joke and also uh, a help as well. So <laughs> thank you. Um, Saints, I am, um, I am thrilled to be here. Um, wow. Uh, Sojourn Midtown. It's, uh, you, you, this church is in my vocabulary. And I, I talk about, uh, about this church. We, we feel as if that Soldier Midtown is living faith north. And, uh, and so we, we share the same convictions. We share uh, the same heart, uh, especially for multi-ethnicity. And that is something that, uh, that we wholeheartedly believe in and are called to. Uh, and more than that, um, this is a church filled with friends. <clears throat> I'm so grateful for, uh, for Pastor Jason and, and his being here. Uh, he has been shaped and mentored and used well and fruitfully here at Sojourn Midtown. And, uh, and so we knew he was coming up here to, to get his MDiv, and, uh, which you're, you're done? Hey, praise God. Amen, brother. Amen. Yes. I know that is a relief. Uh, to you in so many ways. I, I am so encouraged by uh, Pastor Jamal. Uh, he's, uh, he is a, a dear brother, and I appreciate his, his leadership gifts, uh, his heart for the people of God. Every time he and I talk, uh, I am stirred, I'm moved, I'm excited to go do great things for God, and uh, so encouraged by him. Um, my dear brother, um, Pastor Jarvis, uh, is like, I, I, we need to do some kind of DNA test. That there's some kind of family connection in there someplace. Uh, but I think that family connection really is the Spirit of God. And uh, um, Jarvis and I, we met back in 2014. And we really kind of became connected in 2015. And uh, just so grateful uh, for our friendship and, uh, with Anna and Jaden. Um, just as I'm encouraged uh, with, um, with Jason and Christina and uh, looking forward to seeing Lennox. Hadn't seen him in a minute. Uh, so certainly excited about, about that. <clears throat> so we're going to engage, and I'm going to just make a couple of comments about the message before I give us our theme and we come before the Lord and ask for his, his help. <clears throat> Two things here. Uh, one is I don't think this message is really expository. And I know that there are a lot of sermon analysts <laughs> in every gathering of the people of God. And, uh, and so, so I want to just set an expectation right now. The text, I think, will loom large in our reflection time today. Uh, but I think a lot of folks have very um, procedural kind of mechanistic understandings as to what it means to be expository. And so if you're, wait, if you're waiting for that, I don't think that's what it's going to be. The second thing I want to say is uh, we're going to really assume today 
what the Bible gives us, which is an undeniable spiritual reality, that our world is, is grounded in and enmeshed in a profound spiritual reality. I'm not talking about forces. I'm talking about that they are spiritual beings and they're, that are at play, that are working against us. I also want to say we have more time to talk about this. Uh, there is also spiritual, the Lord and his posse that's working with us. And so, and so the focus of this message is not spiritual warfare uh, per se, uh, but it is very much assumed. And so what that means is that I'm not going to defend or explain or somehow justify this vast spiritual framework that is, I think, this message, this reflection is kind of grounded in. Just as the Bible presents it without any significant explanation, just kind of proclaims it and deals with it and helps us to navigate it, we're going to make that assumption as well, that there is a vast uh, um, spectrum of spiritual beings that are in so many ways permeate our lives and our world. And so with that said, our, our thought today simply is this, and Jason alluded to it, is pulling down strongholds. Thank you for reading the passage of Scripture earlier. Let me say it again. Pulling down strongholds. Let's go before our God. <clears throat> Father, we, we need your help this morning. The time that we're going to spend here with your people, Lord, is not intended in any way to be some kind of sanctified performance. This is not a production. This is blood earnest, serious spiritual business. And this is your vast concern for the freedom of your people and your power in their lives. And so, Father, I confess before you, I am not up to the task that you have in this text. And so we need your spirit. Father God, would you profoundly set me aside? Father, help me not to be seen at all. God, I pray that these people will have, as we push into this, no awareness of me, but a full awareness of you, God, that you would proclaim yourself in this hopefully kairos moment. So be great, Father, and we believe in the power of your Spirit and ask for his help, Jesus. In your name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Amen. God, God bless you. Well, Toni Morrison uh, is one of my favorite authors. Uh, my wife loves her work. I'm going to say to you right now, if you're looking to, to find some interesting, compelling things to read, read anything that she has. And she really is considered by many to be, if not America's greatest novelist, certainly one of its greatest. She won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction in 1987 for her compelling work, Beloved. <clears throat> Beloved deals with Sethi, who is the main character, and she is haunted by the ghost of her oldest, whom she, Sethi, killed so that her oldest would not be brought back into 
slavery. All the other children are scarred by both the murder of their sister and the haunting with her daughter, Denver, becoming socially isolated. The fact that this great thing, this great painful thing happened in her family has pushed Denver into social isolation. The ghost is an undeniable manifestation of guilt. But it's also intended to show the lasting psychological, physical, emotional, and spiritual effects of slavery on people, their families, and their communities. My friends, the emotional, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual effects of multi-layered trauma is a common theme in many of Morrison's novels. The Bluest Eye deals with the challenge of identity and the fact that this young girl is not comfortable with, with who she is. And she tragically loses herself in trying to be someone else as Morrison deals with both the evils of mistreatment and colorism as well as sexual abuse. The Song of Solomon deals also with identity and self-discovery as a young man tries to find himself by uncovering his family's history. Sula is the complex relationship between women as they deal with social norms and expectations in society in its relation to the men in their families. Morrison presents people as complex. And let's be clear, saints, that complex people need a complex and nuanced discipleship. That you cannot come at people with simple phrases or these little, like, catchphrases. You, you can't have these very straightforward and simple ideas to deal with these formulas, to deal with the complexities of where people are living. If you're going to walk with people as they become like Jesus, brace yourself. Because people's stories, their narratives are shaking. They are often disturbing and unsettling. All of us have stories like that. We need discipleship pathways that answer the personal, family, cultural, and social challenges described by Morrison. I don't think Toni Morrison is offering prescriptions. I don't think what she's saying is prescriptive for us. I would suggest to you that Morrison's, even her, 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 her narratives don't even provide a meaningful diagnosis of the human condition. But I do think what, what Morrison does, she provides what we could call much of the blood work for the soul that Toni Morrison gives us a kind of metabolic blood panel for the souls of people of color. Where are they? How do I assess and recognize the indicators of something meaningfully traumatic? So we must take seriously, my friends, the soul-binding influence of multi-layered trauma personal trauma, which is often, this is one that really grabs me, that's a big part of my own personal discipleship ministry, is the personal trauma that is self-inflicted. 
I think we need to own the fact that most of our, many of our issues are issues that are self-inflicted. It, it, it is our failures. It is my sin, what my sin has done to me. It, 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 it is the shame and the regret. That is the weight that almost all of us cover, carry to some degree, but there's also interpersonal trauma. We talk a lot, do we not, about abuse. The abuse of words. The imperfections of parents affects their children. And one of the things that fascinates me is how children, especially adult children or adult grandchildren, wound their parents through their irresponsibility, through their premature attempts to declare independence of their parental authority, and they go out and do things, and then here comes mom and dad or grandma and granddad coming in to rescue the situation. I was talking with a member of our church just about a month ago, and she had to lay down $2,000 for her knuckleheaded son. And she didn't really have the money, but she had the love. And because she had the love, she found the money, and that wounded her. It was kind of traumatic. Often what we think of as generational curses, I know that phrase can make some uncomfortable, are really generational traumas passed on when failures and grievous sins are experienced or when one member verbally projects it on another. Those of you who are in my generation recall the movie The Five Heartbeats. And in that, in that film, one of the characters uh, said to his son, he said, my dad was nothing, I ain't nothing, and you ain't going to be nothing. And so this was, this was a, a, an expression of a family's traumatic story being imposed on a, another generation, wounding their soul. But there is also ethnic, cultural layers of trauma. Sheila Rise Rose, in her excellent book, Healing Racial Trauma, talks about different forms of racial, ethnic, cultural trauma, which works its way into the hearts and minds of people. Here are three of them. She had several, but here are three of them. One is historical trauma. This is where a group is affected by the deep wrongs in the past. For example, the, the rampant alcoholism in addiction and depression that we see amongst Native Americans, our indigenous brothers and sisters. When your story includes something called the Trail of Tears, you can rest assured that there are going to be significant traumatic implications from your history. Another example that she speaks to is transgenerational trauma. This is where specific past experiences of ethnic cultural trauma has present-day effects on family members. So, for example, uh, there's a, 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 an Asian-American brother in our church who he and I were at lunch about a month or so ago, and he was talking about how, how his grandparents were, kept, were in these internment camps in World War II. And as he was talking about this, I could feel his, I could see his pain. I could see his eyes begin to water. I could see the weight of what happened to them was experiencing him. It was affecting his identity. It was affecting his sense of, as, 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 if, if this is really, is this my place? Am I safe here? This is our story. Then there's also vicarious trauma. This one is big today. This is when the personal, emotional, physical trauma of one person that you identify with affects you when you see it or hear it. 
That was the trauma I felt when I saw George Floyd's life snuffed out. I remembered I was sitting in my living room and I was watching it. And my wife said, I can't watch that. I'm, I'm not sure what that is. I can't watch that video. I don't want to see anything like this. And I'm going to tell you, my soul just wrenched. And I ran, I ran into the kitchen and I wept out loud. And she said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I began to describe it. She said, stop. Don't, I, I don't want to hear it. That is vicarious trauma. Saints, please feel me that one of Satan's chief tactics is creating, feel me please, what the enemy does, he creates personal, family, or social environments that damage the human psyche and soul. He affects the mind in ways that makes it hard to relate to others righteously. These mindsets are mental strongholds. A little while back, uh, I was at home watching the film Till. There's some of you who have seen that, just the, the story of Emmett Till. And I'm watching this film, and there's this one scene where, where Emmett Till's mom, Emmett Till, is in this room where they're going to show her his body. And they pull back this sheet, and you see this mangled face. And I'm looking at this, and I'm saying to myself, sin doesn't explain that. Missing the mark does not explain that. This is not merely an expression of sin. And so Simon Chan, who's one of my theological heroes, he talks about the fact that, yes, we often discuss the sin within. It's important that we understand the sin within, but we also need to understand the evil beyond, is that there is a kind of interface, there is, a re, there is an interaction between what the devils do and what the demonic does. And when you look at Emmett Till's body, you recognize it takes something sinister and devilish to allow people to do something like this, Simon Chan says, Simon Chan says, is that our souls have a kind of elasticity. There is a plasticity in our souls. And just as a Christian, if they walk with Jesus, if you're walking in the Spirit, that your soul can inflate into virtue. Likewise, your soul has the ability to inflate into evil. And that people can essentially be demonic. And what you see with something like, like Jim Crow, for example, that allows people to do something like this and have reasons in their mind as to why it's justified, that is an expression, my friends, of the implications of principalities and powers. That is why something like Jim Crow is an attitude that becomes codified in law. It is because there are spiritual forces at work that engenders this down in society and it percolates its way down into minds. And so that people are capable of doing things that only devils can imagine. You've met, many of you have been to the Holocaust Museum. What you see there is not merely an expression of sin. It is a reality of our being in this spiritual world and that these beings have ability through these systems and ideas that percolate to create strongholds. You ask, what is a stronghold? Think about 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 
where Paul says to us that, that, that the enemy, that the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's not talking about him kind of whispering to you lies so you can't see. He's talking about a full in, in environment, a climate, a sociocultural climate that blinds. That's what he's saying here. And so one of Satan's chief taxes, of course, is to create these strongholds. What is a stronghold, you ask? It is an entrenched pattern of thought. Feel that. It is an entrenched pattern of thought, a narrative, an internalized ideology a theology, a value or behavior, and by that I would mean a shared behavior, an entrenched behavior that is contrary to the word and will of God. This is what a stronghold is. And what Satan loves to do, (laughs) here's what he loves to do. He loves to entice the church to create strongholds. Uh, I want you to feel me, please. I said it intentionally. Is that Satan likes to entice the church to create strongholds. Everybody wants to blame the world. (laughs) Everybody wants to point to what's happening out there. We're concerned about the threats from the culture. (laughs) We, we, We build walls. We build all kinds of walls to who educates our children, to who we're hanging out with, the movies that you should watch. You're watching Netflix, you should watch Perflix. And so there's a whole variety of things that we create trying to protect ourselves from the world. But I want you to feel me, saints, that what Satan likes to do is to use the church to create strongholds by mishandling the word and further wounding the wounded. A preferred satanic weapon for forming strongholds is the use of the gospel or the word of God as a band-aid placed on what is a deep, soul-threatening wound. That's what he likes to do. He he wants the people of God to bring a band-aid to a gunshot. Here's the gospel. And I want you to be very clear that the Lord is not happy with this. Look at Jeremiah 6, 14. Here's what the Lord says. He says, they have treated my people's brokenness superficially. Claiming peace, peace when there is no peace. The Lord is saying, I'm not happy with this. These are my people. These are leaders. These are those who should be caring for them. We're actually saying, hey, it's not a big deal. What are you complaining about? He says in verse 14, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. So my friends, I want us to feel this morning that treating the gospel like a magic pill while strongholds wreck people's lives, families, and communities is a devil's playground. He wants that more than he wants you in the world. He wants you, I want you to feel me, please. He wants you to believe that the gospel, that the Lord is impotent, 
to deal with your deep issues. He wants you to think that there is no way that God can permeate the deep things that have happened to your soul, that this is a place where the gospel is not meant to reach, that what God wants you to do is to have a way of thinking to allow that woundingness to fester, to think, take that thing, and, and, and you, you want to think that it's a cross, but in your heart you feel like it's a curse. He wants you to think that there is no way to reach this while people are coming at you with simplicity saying, just trust Jesus. Your identity is in Christ. But I want you to feel this, my friends, and we're going to get to our text. Let me say it very succinctly, that God travels with power. This is a fundamental biblical reality. God does not traffic in ideas. And so for those who think that the gospel and the people of God is about the distribution of concepts, that it's about your ability to understand these notions, that the power is in your affirming truths, that it's in the affirmation of truths, that you find freedom, that it's the acceptance of a biblical ideology, that that's where the life is. God says, no, 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 no. I'm about changing people. I'm about demonstrating real power. I flex where there are no other answers. That is the circumstance and situation in which God says, then you will know I am the Lord. And so this is who our God is. This is what he does. That God has provided the resources in the gospel to pull down strongholds. And our text this morning helps us to feel that deeply. We've just got two thoughts here this morning. Two brief <laughs> thoughts. One is indeed that the gospel provides the resources to pull down strongholds. That's our main point. The second thing we want to do is talk about how. How do, does the gospel pull down strongholds? Let me just say as an aside, is that the most critical thing that the church of Jesus Christ does, this is what discipleship is, is that discipleship provides the answer to how. Not primarily the answer to what. It provides the answer to how. Jesus says to go and might make disciples and teach them to do, to obey all I've commanded you. Not just teach them the principles of what I said. Don't just give them the narrative of what I did. I want you to help them to do what I said. How is the essential Christian response? It is the evidence of the presence of the power of God is in the how or the fact that I am living it. I said, I was talking with, with, with uh, my, my, my brother Jarvis last night and, and yesterday, and we were talking about how, how we need to understand that orthodoxy is much more than just the, 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 the truth that we're teaching. It is the reality that we are. It is the reality of what God has done. God has done something to us. We are ontologically different. There's a word for you. And what that new ontology entails is freedom from strongholds. Here's our first thought, saints. Let's dive right in. God has provided in the gospel the resources to pull strongholds down. In our passage this morning, Paul is confronting a mindset, a carnal stronghold that has caused men and the leaders in the Corinthian church to disrespect him. They say to Paul, he is timid. 
Paul's not confronting these issues when he's here. Paul's not addressing these issues. He's writing these words when he's not here. Paul's kind of a coward. Paul's not really about it. You think Paul doesn't have the, the power of grace. His, 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 his words amount to nothing, they say to him. He writes weighty, but in person he is unimpressive. And Paul rejects that mindset. If you look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul rejects that mindset and embraces the mindset of Christ. What does he say? By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I want you to get that reciprocity. That Paul receives strikes, but he does not strike back. By the gentleness and meekness of Christ, I appeal. Paul is trying to reach them. It is a notable that here the man of God is trying to, to reach his enemies, that he can see the helplessness in their rebellious sin. He can see their need for a savior. He can see that. So he does not respond through like great defense. He responds in humility and gentleness. But the thing I want you to really feel here is that Paul does not internalize their false projections. We are not to do that either. And by that I mean that we are not to believe the lies the devil tells us about ourselves. Which usually originates in the words of others. The devils use others to inject into you some uncertainty, this is their goal, about you. It may be intended or unattended. It may be innocent in one sense, well-meaning, like Peter with Jesus. He meant well, but he was being leveraged by the enemy to speak against what Jesus was going after. And Jesus said, yo, man, what you're doing is carnal. That's not a spiritual thing. That is a carnal thing. The devils like to do that. How do you recognize the voice of the enemy in these things? How do you recognize these false projections? It's when they will tell you something is wrong with you. There's something about you that's not right. It doesn't make any sense. They're challenging your worth and value. They're suggesting that you are inadequate. They're suggesting that you are too late. <laughs> I'm hoping in next year to, to begin a, a, a doctoral program, Lord willing, at, at Southern. And I was talking to a friend of mine who teaches at another seminary, and, uh, and he's a great brother. He's a great friend. I'm going to tell you the seminary, and I'm not going to tell you anything like that. But as we were talking about, he was like, Daryl, you know, man, at this point in your life, Maybe you should just be trying to encourage others. <laughs> what he was saying is that it's too late for you. Yes, that's needed, but not you. It mimics his wisdom, but it's intended to injure. It's intended to create a kind of hopelessness. It's intended to create resignation. One way you can recognize the devil's voice of discouragement is when there's one or two saying no to you, but there are many who are affirming and, and they see the fruit in your labors. This was Paul. His work spoke for itself. And sometimes the devil uses this against you. But I want to move forward to our main point here in, this, in our passage. Look at verses, verse 3 and 4. 
Here's what Paul says. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Paul acknowledges there are worldly ways that are effective for worldly purposes. (laughs) Charisma is effective for worldly purposes. You're going to plant a church, maybe? What should that church planting pastor look like? People talk about church planters need to be entrepreneurial. Really? Is church planting entrepreneurship? <laughs> I, I thought it was something supernatural. I thought it was something profoundly spiritual. I thought God liked using the weak to show that he's strong. So and I'm looking for entrepreneurs. So the world says influence, wealth, talent. And there's nothing wrong with these, my friends. These are fine, but Paul says they are not effective for the war that we are fighting. We do not wage war as the world does. Paul says we are not fighting the world's war, so we don't fight the world's way. And we don't fight for the world's reasons. Our aims and values, my friends, please feel this, are not only different from the world's, but what we do is actually subversive to the world. We are intended to demonstrate a potency and power that goes counter to the world's wisdom. In fact, when we show that when we prove that we have these jars of clay to show that this confidence is not of us but is of God, when we prove that, we display to the world something bigger than the world, something weightier than the world. So Paul is saying, hey, that's not what we are about. In fact, he would say, we represent a decisive shift. Stay with me, please. This is like playing on the same field with the same tools of the game with different objectives. Say, say for example, you got, you got football, you're on a football field. And one team is playing to win, to score touchdowns, to get more points. And the other team is doing something artful. It's a dance, which includes both what they do and also what the opposition does. They're trying to display athletic, you know, kind of like expressions of, 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 of creativity. And so they're on that. It looks like they're playing, they're doing the same thing. And so it's confusing, but they are profoundly different. The world's war is, my friends, a numbers game. Dollars. Followers. You want to be a social media influencer? How many followers do you have for Jesus? These are the world's metrics, but they are not spiritual per se. The world's game, I want you to feel this, my friends, is centered on self. What am I getting? Stay with me, please. Most people, let me say it differently, many people in our churches arrive in our churches with gospel language, but with worldly visions. They want to know, what am I getting? Am I being fed? 
that I get without, without what, what I was expecting is, is the children's ministry, what it ought to be. My kids are bored with the ministry. This other thing is lacking. And they're coming to the pastors and they're saying, hey, you know, we love the church, love the fellowship, but we're not getting what we need. Which is something that you never find in Scripture. You show me a text that even implies such a thing. And that, that's not how God thinks about it. The idea of quick transitions is a stronghold. The idea of seeing the church as disposable, like eating on paper plates, is a stronghold. And so coming to see what I'm getting, evaluating, was that sermon fire? Was the worship strong? All these are carnal strongholds and go against what God is trying to do in amongst the people of God. God traffics not in that. God traffics in deliverance. His game is a liberation game. It is a transformation game. Am I becoming more like Jesus? Am I? Feel me please here. I want you to feel what I'm saying. I want you to feel this. That God traffics in endurance. Staying. It's, it's, it's staying for the, what's happening in the fellowship, seeing the needs of others is subverted to the world's attempt to focus on self and tell you to ensure that you're getting what you need. And what the Lord is not going to say to you when you stand before him is, did you get everything you needed? You're going to be judged based on what you gave, my friends, <laughs> not on what you received. And so this is the Lord's game. And the enemy wants you to focus on the world's game because his game ultimately is an enslavement game. It is about bondage to sin and bondage to self. Now, before we press to the last part of reflecting on this text, I think it's important for us to take a brief look at what our weapons are. So let's take a look at Ephesians 6. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 19. I'm not going to run through all of those. I'm just going to have those in front of us while we reflect on what Paul is saying here. There are several weapons that we see that he gives us. We need different weapons for the war that God has called us into. What's the first weapon we see here? It's truth. I'm not just talking about, again, doctrine. Doctrine is the easy version of talking about the truth. The Pharisees had doctrine. And so when we say truth, we mean truthfulness. We mean the practice of truth. We mean discernment. Here it is. We mean something prophetic. I've got prophecy here, but I didn't want to say that exactly because that might make some folks uncomfortable. <laughs> the spirit of truth is among us. We need not only truth, we need righteousness. We need, my friends, the world needs to see an imitation of God in the world. That the world needs to see God. One of my, 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 my favorite um, influences is orthodox spirituality. I love the Eastern Orthodox Church. 
So I'm in the process of, I'm a Baptist. I, I, I believe Baptistic doctrines. But I'm also a Wesleyan, I've come to be. All right, praise God, sis. That's what I'm talking about. I, I, I embrace something that I like to refer to as gospel ecumenism. If the Spirit of God is there, and so the Orthodox Church talks about something that's called theosis. <laughs> Have you heard that term? Listen to it. Theosis. If you translate it into English, it means deification. I love that term. You can think of it as sanctification to some degree. I think it's more than that. I don't have time to talk about this beyond the scope of our message. But, but the thing I want you to feel is that we are meant, my friends, we are meant to become like God. That God, God's character attributes, God's personality character is communicable. I want you to feel the reality of this is that Jesus is not meant to be for us like the horizon. Christ is not meant to be some far-off target that's so unachievable that I see the Sermon on the Mount, it is so impossible that I simply need a doctrine of grace to make up for the fact that there's a profound gap between me and that. In actuality, we are meant to live out Christ's own character. Dallas Willard says this. He says, spiritual formation is when we have like the soul of Christ in our own soul. Who Christ is internally is who we are meant to be, and that's what Paul, what Paul is calling us to here. We are to have the gospel of peace, not just proclaiming the gospel, but it's peace. The aims of the rulers and authorities, the principalities and powers, are to inject and maintain hostility. The church fighting the culture, would you feel me please, is profoundly anti-Christ and anti-God's character and anti-gospel. <laughs> this warring attitude against the culture, and I'm going to say it again, I alluded to it earlier, the idea of building of walls and moats between ourselves and the culture is a profound contradiction to the Great Commission, not to mention the Great Commandment, is that we have invented a vision of the Church of Christ that basically engages with itself and that sees the world as a profound threat, as if Christ, I suppose if you're Reformed enough you believe this, that, that Christ did not die for the world. We need faith to trust in God's power and have confidence in his promises. The enemy attacks us with seeds of doubt. He wants you to think that nothing can change. I was in um, Wichita, Kansas this past week. And I have a spiritual director. And I was talking to my spiritual director to another person who was there who was a therapist who I had a conversation with about a rip in my soul that I've had for 36, 37 years. And when I said to my spiritual director, I said, listen, this issue that I've had has been the most defining aspect of my life other than my salvation. It has been more impactful on who I am, how I live every day, more than my marriage, 
more than the birth of my children. This issue has defined me. And I said to my spiritual director, I don't, think, I don't see how God can do this. I don't see how God can. I, I, said, I, I, I didn't say it as explicitly as that, but as I was explaining, I, I said it like this. I said, I've come to realize I will die with this. And in my heart, I said, Lord, you can't touch this. You can, but you won't. And I'm going to tell you, my friends, this is my story. God met me on the edge of that pond in those woods by the Spiritual Life Center in Bel Air, Kansas. And the Lord began to say things to me that I'd never heard before. God spoke into my life. It was him, the Spirit of Christ, spoke deep down in my life as I was writing a letter to him and my parents. It was as if the Spirit of God took over the pen and began to say things to me that I'd never heard. I looked, I dropped, I was like, Lord, are you saying this? Am I going to be free? And what Paul is saying is that we need faith to believe in the power of God, that God, in fact, saves, that there's saving power that Christ delivers. Is the Greek word soza? Is, is, is that, is that, is that soza? Not, not, I mean, just when we think about salvation. Amen. So I, I said to myself that I was looking for, maybe I said it wrong, looking for soza Jesus. Deliverance Christ. And it needs to be grounded in the Word of God. But saints, let me leave you with this before we make our final points. Is that all of this has to be bound with prayer. Look at what Paul says here at the end of this passage in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 18. He says here, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Paul's not just talking about prayer generically. This passage is not dropping out of the sky. He's talking about praying in response to the presence of the principalities and powers and what they're doing. He's saying, I strike back against their attempt to create strongholds in my life and our community through prayer, that prayer is more than a spiritual discipline. It is also a spiritual weapon. Aren't you moved by what we see in Exodus 32? <laughs> When God had decided that he was going to wipe out the Israelites and start over in Moses, it was done. God said it. And then what does Moses do? He prays. I want you to understand, my friends, that prayer is a spiritual weapon, that prayer has the power. We can talk about it theologically after church, that prayer has the power to move God. The unmovable is movable by his own design in prayer. And we can talk about the impassibility of God, but God has made it very clear that prayer reaches his heart. It changes things. And that we can pray for the saints to resist spiritual influence, that we can push back against the devils, let's go back to verse 4. We're going to wrap things up here. Here's what Paul says. He says, on the contrary, our weapons, they have divine power to demolish, strong, demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
that the gospel, and when we say this, we don't just mean the proclamation of the gospel. We mean gospel-driven discipleship and leadership is the means by which God liberates minds and souls, even from cultural legacies. I've shared with Pastor Jamal and I were talking about what makes a healthy multicultural church. How do you recognize one? And often people think about numbers, but but what do we say? God's game is not a numbers game. A healthy multicultural church is not about the percentages of cultures in your church. That says nothing about it. The whole variety of different circumstances that can impact the numbers. What makes a healthy multicultural church, my friends? A healthy multicultural church is one where all of the cultural legacies of brokenness are being addressed in the discipleship in that church that there's no aspect of their, of their journey from their brokenness to their wholeness in Christ, that there's not a single legacy that's being met with the spiritual band-aid, that every one of those legacies are receiving real balm and discipleship where the leadership are not hitting you with simple abstracted biblical truths but are looking to understand your story and your situation and bring the power of God and the presence of his love in what you're saying to them to that situation and circumstance where every culture has their, their story addressed and is being retold by gospel discipleship. That is a healthy multicultural church. I want you to see that Paul does not credit himself, but he credits God here in this text. He talks about divine power to bring down strongholds, which are a well-fortified place or a fortress. And Paul would say to us today, this is not about secular thinking versus biblical thinking. Reject attempts to talk about this is a secular worldview versus a biblical worldview. What you're looking for is character. You're looking for something redemptive. And God has put himself in this world. And so we can talk about, for example, something secular, and we can embrace it as Christians, like democracy is not a biblical idea. But I was in the military. I think it is right that we fight for democracy. And so it's not about secular versus biblical. It's about carnal versus spiritual. And what God wants to do is not to deal with worldviews per se, but to engage rebellious mental frameworks which enslave us. He says that he demolishes these. He's saying to us that our mere words lack the power to pull down these strongholds, that you cannot merely argue people. This is not about your reason. I don't care how bright you are or how quick-witted you are. The devil, Spurgeon says, is a more able disputant than you are. You do not have the power in your reasoning to bring down strongholds. You might silence that person, but you will not change them. We need God for that. He has power to change these thoughts, these underlying reasons of the heart, these unspoken assumptions and convictions, these noemas, the schemes and tricks, the devil. 
like cynicism in our society is a stronghold where people just reject hopefulness. But God has the aim through the gospel to bring hopefulness where cynicism is looking to take hold. God can bring a longing and belief and redemption and restoration. Here, here, and here. Let me wrap things up here with the how. How do we pull down strongholds? Let's say it better. How does God pull down strongholds in our life? And to be clear, we must participate in that. The first thing I want to suggest is we have to name it. We have to recognize this is something I need God to do. We have to recognize that wound that I have or we have. We have to see the problem is beyond us. We need to say, this is something that we need God to do. We cannot, with all of our good intentions, we need the presence and power of the Spirit of God. Think about the wind blowing at Pentecost. Think about the tongues of fire, holy God. We need your potent presence. The second thing we need to do is we need to, we need to, do is we need to consecrate ourselves. Holiness is essential in our response to evil. Can I say it again? Holiness is essential in our response to evil to practice spiritual warfare without a genuine pursuit of holiness is to invite disaster. You cannot take on the devil without consecration. I want to be very clear about this. Some people think calling overcomes sinful habits and patterns because I'm called, but it does not. Habitual sin eats spirituality for lunch. Can I sit here for another 30 seconds? Has someone after the first service to say, how do I consecrate myself? Can I answer that for you? When we talk about spiritual formation and living faith, one of the things that we have folks do is we have them to make a list of two things. We say, because every person has a, the Spirit of God is going to put his hands on something in your life. When you're consecrating yourself, it's more than just an attitude. The Spirit of God is going to identify. He's going to, he's going to come to you and identify things in your life that you need to deal with. One way he does that, and this is the framework that we've given our church, we say it to our people, I want you to identify two things. First of all, identify the things that deepen your sense of God's presence. Write them down. What are the things that you do when you do them or the things that you practice that give you a greater sense of the presence of God? There is a need for intentionality here. And so what helps me to feel more deeply God's presence and purposes in my life? Those are the things that deepen my sense of him. Then how do I accent and do those things more? Am I giving those things the attention? How do I position myself to situate myself to be grabbed and be embraced by the Spirit of God? The second thing we say to our people is what dampens your sense of God's presence? What pushes you away? Here's one of mine. It's staying up late. I could be reading. I could be watching Netflix. That 
dampens my sense of God's presence. And if I, want to, if I want to be consecrated for me, my change agenda is to let those things go. You want to identify yourself as you consecrate yourself. What are those things that bring you closer to God? And what are those things that push you away from God? Jot those things down and practice those things that give you a greater sense of his presence and stop those things that give you a greater sense of God's absence. The third thing is to bridge gaps. And I believe here that multi-ethnic churches are the only appropriate gospel response to the stronghold of racialized thinking. There's no other game in town. It's not legislative action, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, we needed those things. But they don't change racialized thinking. They change racialized behavior for a season. But multi-ethnic churches, if you had time for this, we'll talk about it on Wednesday. We will talk about it on Wednesday that multi-ethnic churches actually begin to affect what people think or feel before they reason. <laughs> that the more you spend time with people who are not like you, you spend time with black and, and brown and, 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 and yellow and red and white, and I know it's all colors, and there's some other colors we're missing, but, but the more you do that, you literally are retraining yourself to see people not in categories, and you're doing it not just hanging out together, but inside gospel community where love is flowing amongst you, it literally rewires your brains. We've said to our church, we say, I said from the pulpit that a part of our, 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 our mission is to rewire your synaptic connections so that you don't perceive categories when you see people who are not like you, but you see individuals. And so we've got to bridge gaps, my friends, if we're going to break that stronghold. We need spiritual partnerships. We need to see the need for the collaboration, for example, between emotional psychological therapy and spiritual therapy and discipleship. They both have a place. <laughs> it is general revelation when folks have gone off to receive that training, but it cannot transform us. We still need discipleship. See those things as working together. We need prayer pivots. We alluded to this already. Is that prayer changes circumstances. It redirects things. There are things that God does because we pray, and there are things God does not do because we don't pray. You cannot leverage the sovereignty of God to somehow excuse the fact that God didn't act in your prayerlessness. Here's our last point, saints, and I'm out of your way. That our final salvation is greater than our temporal deliverance. That there are circumstances in our lives Wounds, limps that we will have until we get before Jesus. Here's how we see it on our last slide. If you could go to Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> Jesus' disciples were participating in deliverance ministry. The power of God was being exhibited through them. Strongholds were being broken. People were being set free. 
And Christ said to them, that is a good thing, but that's not the greatest thing. There's something more essential (laughs) than just breaking the chains of that stronghold, which God is concerned about in your life. He is saying there's something greater that we're holding on to. And that we're trusting Christ. We, we know that the day of our final and ultimate deliverance is the perusia. <laughs> it is Christ coming back. Christ is going to change it all. And we need to maintain our centeredness on the hope of the return of Christ and the final salvation of our souls. It is not ultimately about your circumstantial change. As much as God is concerned about your circumstantial situation, he is more greatly concerned about his redemptive movement to save you and to save the world. My prayer for you is that you would recognize that there is freedom that God wants for you and breaking the strongholds that have been placed on you. Christ has come to defeat the devil. We see this in 1 John chapter 3. We also see in in, uh, um, Colossians chapter 2 that he came by the cross and he defeated the principalities and powers. But ultimately, that defeat is eternal. And my prayer, sojourn, is that God would nourish your hearts for the journey. Father God, I pray that you would just be with these people. I love this church. They don't know me, (laughs) but I'm grateful for them. I thank you, Jesus, for their patience with me today and giving me the space and liberty to stand in to share your word. We love you, Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.